The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. A bit later this week, we'll hear about two shows that have just opened in the Netherlands, Rembrandt Velasquez at the Rijksmuseum and Peter de Hoog at the Museum Prinsenhof in Delft. But first this week, the New York performance and visual arts space, The Shed, has organised a retrospective of the work of Agnes Dennis, whose decades-long career spans, among other media, sculpture, poetic and philosophical writings, diagrams and environmental art. She's perhaps best known in New York for Wheatfield, which was quite literally that, a two-acre field of wheat that she planted, tended and harvested in 1982 on landfill in Lower Manhattan. Our deputy art market editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, sat down with her to talk about her work and her philosophy. You're known for creating what is kind of the first eco-conscious earthwork. And I think that speaks to a larger philosophy behind your work in general. And in fact, I once read that you wrote that making art today is synonymous with assuming responsibility for our fellow humans. And that does seem to embody a certain kind of philosophical approach to your work. What did you mean by that statement? Just what it says. Assume responsibility. Well, I think that that's top of mind for a lot of people now. Obviously, with the climate change conversation and whatnot. So, you were talking about this back in the 1960s. What first attracted your attention to these kind of ecological issues, and what made you want to respond to them then? Well, it's it was obvious to us who were studying the environment was studying what was going on in the world, and scientists and some artists and thinking people were concerned already then. It just took the world this long to become aware of it. And that's a big problem that it takes us such a long time to become aware of things. Now everybody's talking about the environment. Nobody was talking about it five years ago. I mean, not many. And People are like little monkeys. They listen to each other and all of a sudden everybody's jumping up and down about it and then they forget it. And that's another problem. You can't just worry about something, make it a cult and walk away from it. I gave it my life. And it's not just the environment, it's the entire human condition. So there are a lot of environmental artists today and I'm very happy that there are so many. But when I started it, it wasn't just the environment, it wasn't just the water quality, it wasn't just the air quality. I measured New York air quality before it was taken care of. I actually bottled air air for one of my exhibitions called New York Air. I know it sounds silly, but it was important at the time. And... It just, it started, it started that way from science, from research, and from being conscious of something that nobody was listening to. And now everybody's talking about it. I just hope they won't forget it. Um, Let's talk about one of your earlier works, uh, the rice tree burial work that you did in 1968, and that was in upstate New York. And just for our listeners, this essentially fell into a performance in three acts. You planted a field of rice, then you chained some trees on the site in triangles, and then you buried a time capsule containing your own conceptual poetry. Um, what, what kind of message were you hoping to send through that work 
and and in what ways does it extend? Like you said, you gave your gave your life to these to this kind of consciousness. How does it extend beyond you, having buried that time capsule? Well, uh, let me say this: when you do a work of art, you don't think of a message. Here I am, doing something for you. You make the art. It comes from inside you, from your creative ability, your understanding, and. I was a very curious person all the time, so I studied a lot. I lived in the libraries, and I was also very lucky that I happened to be an artist, so I could visualize my philosophy, and that's what my work is about. Rice Burial was the first recognized major artwork, although I have done very interesting works before that nobody is talking about, such as when I grew up in Sweden, I wanted to study migrating birds because I felt I was uprooted and I was migrating and from country to country. And I compared the birds who, when they are forced together on a small island, Jutland in, in Sweden, they commit suicide. And I was a teenager when I started studying them why they commit suicide, and I design little airplanes and flying objects to pinpoint the moment they com- commit suicide. And I felt the alienation that people who come into different countries feel, the alienation compared it. So I felt that was my first project, but the first recognized project here in this country was Rice Tree Burial. And it was a very complicated, ambitious project. Um, rice represented life, chaining the trees represented interference with life or death, and it was thesis, synthesis, synthesis, and synthesis represented the poetry buried in the ground. Talking about that would take us three hours, so simplifying it, it, I chained a sacred Indian forest where I chained the trees to each other in sculptural formation, transferring the the forest into a sculpture garden. And we had interesting ideas, such as we were covered by little red spiders that didn't exist anywhere, and they were the little Indians who had been buried there. And, of course, I photographed them because nobody believed me. And you have to sometimes prove yourself to people Uh, visually before they believe you and I planted a rice field to represent life I brought in soil from Love Canal and I grew radioactive rice (laughs) and um, went out to to the edge of Niagara Falls and lived there on an area about 10 square feet before they put up barricades and lived there for 8 days probably the scariest experience of my life. It had been dynamited to control the retreat of the falls so that it looks good for the visitors. And it shook under my feet, and I could have fallen in any moment. So they made me sign a a document to both the American and the Canadian government that if I fell in, I would not sue them. And I promised I would not and uh, lived there, photographed it from the edge, about a foot away from where the water was going over. 
is 16,000 tons a second. That's, in short, the Rice burial. What made you want to take that risk? For my art, now looking back, as they forced me every time I have a retrospective, they forced me to look back at my life. I was crazy. <laughs> I took incredible chances, and I still do. I walk across the room not being able to walk for my art. It's, I don't know, it's beyond you. It's, mm. it's coming from somewhere, somewhere inside. Before we get into some of the work that's going on View at the Shed and some of the work that you're proposing um, in, in the show at the Shed, let's rewind a little bit and, and talk about what made you want to become an artist and take these kind of risks, the thing that's beyond you. It's a process. It's, it's, it takes years. When I was born, I was a poet. I wrote my, before I could write, my first poem. I was like six years old. And I was very shy, and I yelled at, to my mother to grab a, a pen or a pencil and write down something. And because I was so shy, she was stunned, and she did it. And it was a poem. It was a little poem about her, silly little thing, about how beautiful she was. But I started out as a poet, and then when I lost my language through all the travels, I spoke five languages when I came to this country, that from the poetry being stilled, a visual expression was born. So I, I see it as an evolving process, very slow. I find this turn of phrase, I've seen you say it before in other interviews, um, that you lost your language. And I wondered what that means for you and in what way visual art and the art and the performances that you've done have provided another type of language or what is that kind of language that comes well, through? Okay, that's a good question. I, I was dealing with philosophy and a philosophy as such is dead, but philosophy or philosophical thinking is necessary. So I felt that if I took my concepts into a visual form, it would be better understood. And so I took philosophy and visualized it. And that has never been done before, and I had no guidance of how to do it. It was very difficult to put math and logic and, and thinking processes and all that into a visual language. It's very difficult. So that's what my art is about. And I'm afraid people have to think a little when they look at it. I'm afraid to stop the usual occupation of listening and start thinking. And that's how you get to my work. I make it beautiful so that you're caught by the beauty. And while you're contemplating the beauty, you begin to understand it. I think one of your most beautiful works and one of the works that you're really well known for was... Uh, the wheat field that you planted downtown, right in sight with, of World Trade Center and Wall Street, was this intended as a kind of anti-corporate message? And more broadly, do you have any reflections on how the city has evolved in the last four decades? And what's your view of the site where the shed has recently opened, you know, Hudson Yards, which some critics say is this an homage to untrammeled wealth? Um, is there, how does that play into your retrospective in a site like that? 
It's a big oh, question. The work doesn't have to play into anything. It's it's the retrospective has to play into the work. But that's besides the point. When I was invited, actually, by Public Art Fund to do a public artwork, like putting a man on a horse in a plaza, I decided to plant a wheat field instead. And they wanted to put me into Queens, where it was easy to get a land. But planting a wheat field in Queens would not have been as eloquent to answer your question of why I did it as an accusation of what we were doing as a block from Wall Street facing the Statue of Liberty across the Hudson and where the immigrants came in to the United States in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And there was nothing there. They were beginning to build Battery Park City, which now has taken over my Wheatfield space. Wheatfield spoke to people because it's the um, most commonly understood concept. Rice and wheat are the greatest consumptions in the world. So visually it was easily understandable and conceptually it was an accusation of the misuse of land, the greed, the mismanagement of the world, calling attention to world hunger. It was about many, many issues that we are facing. There was a concept behind Wheatfield. It was difficult to do. I had no money. I got very little money from the public art fund. I had to supplement it. I had to find volunteers daily. I felt obligated if they worked for me for nothing to feed them. So after working on the field all day, I went and made sandwiches for them for the next day. And it nearly killed me. I worked on that for seven or eight months, nine months maybe. But we harvested beautiful, healthy wheat. And it was the only healthy wheat in the country because the wheat fields had been attacked by uh, a wheat smut that year. And people said, how come that your field doesn't have it? I said, we picked it by hand. <laughs> you can't pick a, a field of thousands of acres by hand. And it was beautiful. And people started talking about it. I took a taxi. I, my car was being fixed. I took a taxi to the wheat field. The man says, would you like to see our wheat field? <laughs> Thinking I was a tourist. And I said, no, thank you. I've seen it. <laughs> And we, they came, the people came daily um, to interview us, and actually there were people who interfered with that too. Um, also the people who were construction workers made my life miserable. They wanted to, <laughs> to punish the good-looking chick who was interfering with their work. And you know, it was a long time ago. I was very good-looking and never noticed, though, that I was good-looking. It never occurred to me that I was. But it occurred to the boss. His name was Joe, the mafia leader. And, boy, he was after my hide. He made life miserable. They stole my equipment. They barricaded the gates so that my volunteers couldn't come through. They had to dig a hole under the gate to crawl in to come to work. It was difficult for them, but the volunteers were happy. There was one girl 
whom I put to throw rocks off the field so that we could plant. And she says, you saved me thousands of dollars in psychiatric fee. (laughs) I picked up the stones and threw them and said, you SOB, and I got all my aggression out of my system. (laughs) So there was wonderful friendships and and experiences (laughs) through the field. It was an exciting project. Well, so why was the mafia out for you? And what kind of other forms of resistance Uh, have you had? They were building a city. I was planting a wheat field. They would have liked to plant a wheat field instead, probably. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't them. The, The leader told them to interfere with me because I wouldn't go with him to Atlantic City. Come with me to Atlantic City for the weekend. And I said, aren't you married? And he said, what does that got to do with it? So I think it was him only. But the weather, lack of money. I didn't have enough money to buy soil. I mean, there are so many stories that I've written about. Uh, I, I gave all my money to this guy to get me soil. He never showed up. And we, we had to plant. We were a week late with planting. Finally, he shows up in an empty truck. He says, you're so dumb. You give me this check. I can't get you the soil for that money. It's not enough. Don't trust people. Here is your money. Go do what you want. And somebody else came and gave us the soil. Um, when you're on the right track, people help. And people love the field. When it came 4th of July, we were afraid <laughs> that they're going to run over it. And because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people come to see and the fireworks all over the East River in those days. And the police gave us barricades. We barricaded the field all around. Not one person stepped on it. Not one. There was one little dog that came and peed on it every day, but that's all. (laughs) And it was his favorite pee place, but nobody harmed it. People don't hurt what they love. It's what people have to learn is to trust the right people, Hmm. not to trust the wrong people. So for your exhibition at the Shed, you're kind of riffing on Wheatfield by planting a forest or a proposal to plant a forest in Queens. How is that a recapitulation of Wheatfield? Well, or how is it I designed that four years ago, the forest for New York. And I have a forest for almost every country, but I do what I can, what they let me do. I designed it four years ago, only the model was made now for the shed, and I'm very happy that it was. And it's not, how was it, 130, well, how many... Trees, I don't know. Anyway, it's ten thousand like, trees is what I had noted. But is that yeah? Does that it's sound right? it's a hundred and seventy-five thousand trees actually. If I get it the way I want it, but it's not just the trees. It's a meeting place. It's a peace park. It's a coming together place. It's it's getting rid of the tension of the city place. It's it's relaxing thinking. It's an open area that not everybody has a chance to get into Central Park. So this would be a real forest. And will it actually be realized, or are there talks in place? I have no idea. I have so much trouble getting it started. Um, The Park Commission says it's somebody else's. The 
uh, North pa uh, Waterfront Park Alliance says it's is their responsibility, and they keep, you know, sending you from one place to another. And uh, frankly, I don't have the youth and the time to fight all these people who run against good ideas and wait for somebody else to do it for them. I don't know if it will get done. Or some developer will buy it up and build condominiums on it. I don't know. But I wish it were a peace park and a forest. And if people see it, I want to call attention to anybody who can help make that a reality. Not for me, for New Yorkers and the world. I'm unimportant. I think that's a really good place to end the interview. That's really powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Agnes Dennis, Absolutes and Intermediates, is at The Shed in New York until the 22nd of March 2020. We'll be back in Amsterdam and Delft after this. Following his 1993 Guggenheim retrospective, Roy Lichtenstein embarked on his nude series, The Last Great Flowering, before his death four years later. Harking back to his earliest work, where comic book images had taken centre stage, Lichtenstein revisited, with a fresh eye, themes he'd explored over his long career. New Reading, which leads Bonham's Prints and Multiple Cell in Los Angeles this month, is one of nine screen prints completed in 1994. As Bonham's director of Prints and Multiples in Los Angeles, Marissa Rosenberg explained, Lichtenstein had certainly incorporated nude figures in his work before, but in the nude series he made them the focal point for the first time. While he drew very much on the female figures from comic books as he had in the 1960s, he used his imagination to render them as nudes, showing women, like the absorbed figure in nude reading, comfortable in their own world. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, regular listeners will know that we've been particularly interested in a touring show of Spanish and Dutch masters, which began at the Prado Museum in Madrid this summer. We interviewed the curator of that show in July. The exhibitions opened in a slightly different form at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, where it's called Rembrandt Velázquez, Dutch and Spanish masters. The most striking difference is that in the Rijksmuseum, every single painting by a Dutch master is paired with one by a Spaniard. So Vermeer meets Velázquez, Murillo meets Rembrandt, Zurbaran meets Sanradam, and on five occasions, the two artists in the title, Rembrandt and Velázquez, are side by side. I travelled to Amsterdam to see it, and while I was there, I spoke to Gregor Weber, the exhibition's curator. Gregor, how did the idea of this show come to you? Um, I think the idea to make a show together with Spanish and Dutch paintings is, uh, yeah, was born in 2004, but uh, long before I started in the Rijksmuseum. And uh, when I worked here, of course, we had this always in our head, now we should do it, we should do it. And at the end, um, the Prado decided to make uh, a sort of exhibition about that because the Prado is in 2019, uh, 200 years old. So that they searched for a really good uh, show. And this was a moment that we decided, okay, we do it also. So there were some negotiations, of course, with the Prado and uh, the Rijksmuseum. I think two years, two and a half years ago, uh, to set the first steps, because um, the Prado needs a lot of Rijksmuseum's paintings by Rembrandt and others, and the Rijksmuseum needs a lot of Spanish paintings from the Prado. 
So um, at the end, we got a list of uh, 14 paintings for the Rijksmuseum, including six paintings by Velasquez, which is really amazing. So I think um, if you are now traveling to the Prado, to Madrid, you will see some of the most important, most famous paintings uh, not in the galleries, but they are here. So this is, of course, very, very good. But, of course, we proceeded also to ask for more paintings from other institutions. So at the end, we got 14 of the Prado, but we included 45 more from other collections. So we have nearly 60 paintings in, the, in this exhibition. And I'm sure all of them are really of the best, best quality you can imagine. The, the striking difference between the Prado's presentation this summer and your presentation is that here everything is paired in one way or another. Tell me about some of the pairings and, and how you went about making those pairings. Now we thought that the pairings um, are stronger than to have a long row of 10 paintings each to each other. So a pair is a sort of dialogue, a sort of Socratic dialogue where two yeah, visual dialogues are, uh, are going on and um, that this is always very strong because immediately the beholder is looking from the other to the other painting and then gets something in his mind because he, the beholder, is the third party who uh, takes this, what you see, in words. So there is something happening in your mind and this is something which we stress also in, in this exhibition because it is very difficult, maybe also not possible to to illustrate in an exhibition, let's say, the development of Spanish and Dutch art. So no, it is much better to show both as big columns uh, next to each other, so always uh, Spanish and a Dutch painting paired to each other, and then yeah, let them speak. And they do it very, very well. So our decision was, of course, a little bit the selection to uh, to have paintings um, each uh, sorry to pair paintings which have something in common so mostly of course the size the colors or the the fabric or something like that um, this is so, so to help the beholder a little bit and um, but if if you see then the pairs I think everyone immediately gets a point because the subject may different may be different but the 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 aspect, the concept beneath it is very, very often the same. So you, there's a sort of serene harmony between uh, these paintings. And I think uh, via this method, you get the point, which is uh, who is speaking now the Spanish language and who is speaking Dutch. But they s both say the same. This is really yeah, interesting to see. It really hits you straight away in the exhibition because the very first pairing is a Zulbaran painting Agnes Day, the Lamb of God, next to a Sanradam of an interior of a church. In 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 one's mind, these are these are utterly opposed in terms of images. But the amazing thing is, by looking at these things, suddenly their similarities begin to begin to appear. Yeah, this is a very good example. So the Zulbaran Lamb, the Agnes Day. Um, it is such a restricted image, only the lamp. It's really before a black background, only the colors in gray and ochre. So it is really, I think, the, the essence of the lamp um, as a symbol of the passion of Christ. So it is the Agnes Dei. And really the essence of a Calvinistic church is the church interior painted by Sanderdam of the church in Assendelft. Um, only grey, ochre and white. So it is the same colour scheme which you can see on both paintings. 
Um, and both are so restricted in their um, yeah, imaging that I think everyone gets a point. The, the, the subject is different, a lamp contrasts a uh, church, but both speak very, very hard about religion. And this is what you see and what you feel immediately. And so they comment each other and they add each other's message. There's another intriguing pairing where we actually get Rembrandt and, and Velázquez right together, which brings together this extraordinary image of the jester with books from the Prado and from the Rijksmuseum, the late self-portrait as the Apostle St. Paul. Um, this is a different pairing to the one that was in the Prado. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, there are only two pairs we show here which had also been uh, shown in the Prado because they had a different concept of the exhibition. And they also combined the Apostle Paulus, um, self-protect by Rembrandt, with another painting. Um, but I think what we are doing here is, uh, I think, very strong because it's about yeah, mankind, to say it very phil philosophical. But if you look to the self-protect by Rembrandt, you see that he is depicting himself as a apostle, so he is a, he is a role player, and um, he's playing a role. So... And there's a big, big question mark in his face because his eyebrows are lifted um, as on no other painting I ever saw in the history of art. So he makes a question to the beholder, who I am? What is your role playing in this moment and so on? And next to it, there is the uh, yeah, portrait of a man of little size by Velasquez. And these men uh, used to be court jesters at the court of um, Philip IV in Madrid. And also Velázquez is depicting this man not ridiculous, absolutely not. He depicts him as a serious man, and immediately you get the same feeling. Now, what is man? What is, playing for, for what, is, what is his role now playing there? And the manner how both do it with, on both paintings, gaze coming out of the painting to the beholder, making these questions, links these paintings very, very close to each other. So there is a common link, of course, below the, uh, yeah, the obvious surface of the painting. One of the things that struck me walking around the exhibition is that the way that you draw out the similarities or the thematic com combinations, so in some cases it might be about the fall of light on the figures in the painting, in others there might be an, a, a sort of a, a connection in terms of the thematic content of the, of the paintings. So you want to draw out all sorts of different elements of the paintings and get people to look in different ways, right? Yeah, thinking about the exhibition, I thought that the main purposes, um, I think, for uh, for the people then to make art were religion and realism. And sometimes they are yeah, coming very close to each other. So if there is a saint depicted very realistic, of course, or if a still life is painted such in such a way that you think immediately now there is a microcosmos, uh, there is something which is yeah, made by a god only, then of course these two components, religion and realism, are coming very, very close to each other. So some of these pairs are more in the direction of religion, some are more in the direction of realism, but very often they are combined. And we have no long story to tell, we have only... Okay, only we have 26 flashlights on the relationship of Spanish and Dutch art, and with these 26 pairs, we can tell a lot about these two uh, countries and their art.
I was struck by the fact that the very first painting that you see in the show, which isn't in a, which, is it the only painting which isn't paired, is a portrait of a standard bearer by Rembrandt. An extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, I've, I've never seen this in the flesh before, and the, 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 the exquisite use of paint is, is remarkable. But it's, it's, one of the things about that painting is it's telling us that the countries were at war. This is a standard bearer who was the person, the, the man who rode ahead of the army and put himself at great risk. Uh, uh, I guess that's that, that's in in a way this, a single way that you set the context of what's happening between Spain and uh, the Dutch Republic at that time. Yeah, of course, it is uh, really an extraordinary painting coming from a private collection in France. And uh, in the beginning, I thought about to include it in the exhibition also with a pairing, but it took a long, long way before we get um, the the yes that we could have the painting because there was no export license. And now we can get it only for three months, so it was a little bit too late to have a good pair for it. But the so sometimes you have luck if you have only one painting in that sense because it's the best introductory painting I can imagine because it, it depicts yeah, a standard beer and these people are uh, let's say a symbol of the army of the dutch in the in the in the uh, battle against the spanish people in the war against the spanish people so it is the beginning of the exhibition you see the him and you have immediately of course the image of uh, the 80 year war which uh, when rembrandt painted the standard bearer still lasted um, one of the great things about the exhibition is it makes one think again about the artistic language of the various painters. For instance, there's a pairing of another of the jesters from the court of Philip IV, and again, an incredibly sensitive, very humane portrait um, of the jester that was known as El Primo. And he's paired with a, a Franz Hals painting. Um, on the one hand, this is, this is a very jarring and difficult pairing because in the way both figures were figures that were in some way or objects of ridicule um, but also in terms of the language that the two painters use I've always thought of Velasquez as having this wonderful lightness of touch but when he's next to Howes he's, there's a sort of weightiness of, that his language gains and I don't know if you were struck by these sort of combinations as these things came in yeah, of course, I was struck also about the handling of paint, of course, but at first I was struck when I thought about how, what I can do with this really, really marvelous uh, painting by Velasquez with this jester. He's wearing a, a red, drapery, a red clothes with yellow stripes on it. And this is the, the dress of an, of a jester from the Commedia dell'arte of the Brigella. And the same dress is uh, worn by the jester of Franz Hals. And he shows uh, this jester with a, with a dark skin. We think that it is sort of, he, he painted his uh, skin dark because it was also maybe, we don't know why, but maybe it was uh, something which would be appropriate for jester in the time of Franz Hals. So there's a link between both paintings. There are two persons, the one painted by uh, Velasquez is, of course, really, again, a very serious depiction of a man with, uh, of short size. And the other one by Franz Hals is a very, yeah, it is really, he's laughing, he's making his jokes, so there's another way how to deal with the jester. And Franz Hals is the painter who, I think, had another view on, on this uh, position or this job of the jester. Um, let's talk about one, another of the sort of startling pairs, which I think is, is, is features two of the great paintings of landscapes, or in this case, a cityscape and a landscape. We have uh, the Villa Medici by Velasquez next to the Little Street by Vermeer. And again, this is, this is two painters whose language seems a world apart, and here they are sitting next to each other, and one sees all these correspondences. 
Yeah, it's absolutely surprising to see these paintings, the little strip by Vermeer and the view in the garden of the Villa Medici in Rome by Velasquez next to each other. I, it is, yeah, it's a little bit wonder because they didn't know each other. They are, uh, yeah, they, they, use, they use the same size. They use the same manner, the same pattern, how to organize the lines on the painting. They use the same light, I would say. So there is something very, very similar. Um, so I think only great artists could do that, yeah, to paint such a beautiful composition together with such a beautiful atmosphere in the painting. So, yeah, Vermeer and Velasquez meeting here in the Rijksmuseum. Now, in amongst all the journalists who are here today, we've already had discussions about, oh, isn't, is, isn't Rembrandt the greater master? No, isn't Velasquez? Do you have to plump for one or the other? I always say, um, do you love Ajax Amsterdam or Real Madrid more? So I don't think that there is some, some of these better than the other one. No. Gregor, thank you so much. I thank you. Rembrandt Velasquez is at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until the 19th of January 2020. Now, after the Rijksmuseum, I travelled to Delft, where the exhibition Peter de Hoek in Delft, from the shadow of Vermeer, has also just opened. Remarkably, it's the first exhibition of de Hoek's work in the Netherlands, and indeed in mainland Europe. In Delft, I met Anita Janssen, who curated the show. I'd like to begin by finding out a little bit of background about Peter de Hoek, because he, he didn't begin his life in Delft, did he? No, he was born in Rotterdam in 1629, and the first time he shows up in Delft, so uh, when he documented, is documented in Delft, is in 1652. In the literature, it is said that he might have uh, learned in Haarlem, at Nicolaas Bergen, or in Rotterdam, uh, at Ludolf de Jong. But that's not sure, and I think it's far more plausible that he... Maybe he learned something in Rotterdam, but he starts his career really in Delft. It could have been about 1650 or 1652, we're not sure, but we think he started his career in Delft. And, and tell me about the sort of early works in this exhibition, because there is a massive shift that happens quite soon after he arrives in Delft. What kind of work was he making early in his years in Delft and beforehand, and what kind of work did he begin to make once he arrived here? When he starts his career, he paints uh, what we call korte gaartjes. Uh, that's, that's the same as the, the French corps du garde, and you call it in English guard rooms. So they, these are f- uh, quite simple, dark, stable-like interiors, and inside these interiors you see soldiers, uh, officers, hanging around with maids, uh, they are drinking, gambling, uh, playing cards, and so yeah, that's going on there. And within a few years, so we think that he painted this kind of work still 1655, and between 1655 and 1658, he makes a huge development, and uh, he starts looking at the city, and he's very innovative in making courtyards. He's the first painter who looks behind the houses. So he, he, it's, it's, they're not interiors, but they're really the courtyards of Delft. And that was never done before. And when you compare these paintings to the paintings uh, from 
six, before 1655, you see now that these paintings are very bright. Uh, the sun is shining, uh, the sunlight is, is, is going everywhere, and uh, the color, it, it's very colorful. And he gives a special role to the city of Delft. So you, you see the monuments, you see the towers of the new church, of the old church, you see uh, what is now Museum Prinzenhof, you see the town hall. So he, he really gives the city uh, a, a place in, in his work. It's, it's striking when you look at these, this attention to light that you talk about. Throughout the show, even in his later work too, light seems like a, a, a huge concern. Was that an original thing to do at the time? Were, were other artists of, of his ilk also looking at light? Uh, yes, there, in, in Delft there was a lot going on at, at, at that time, around 1650. You had painters like Emmanuel Witte, uh, Gerard Hoekgeest, uh, Karel Fabricius. They were all focusing on perspective and light. But they were uh, uh, specialized in another genre. They were painting church interiors. And looking inside the churches and looking at the working of the light. And what's unique of Pieter de Hoog is that he... he he, of course, he looks at that church interiors. He must have worked with that painter. He must have seen that painters. But he manages to change the uh, capacity of that uh, church painters into his own new genres. And that's, that's, that's unique and strange because nobody had done that before and nobody did that after. So it, that's a unique part of his oeuvre. When we think about Delft, we do think first of Vermeer as, in terms of painters. And you, the subtitle of this exhibition, in fact, is From the Shadow of Vermeer. What was de Hoek's relationship with Vermeer? Now, we're sure that they must have known each other. They both were a member of the, the, the Painters Guild. And Delft wasn't that big, so I'm sure they must have known each other. But we are also sure that they must have looked at each other's oeuvre, at each other's work. But what's interesting is that when in the past, yeah, I think everybody thought uh, Vermeer is the best, so Peter de Hoog must have looked at Vermeer. Now we are quite sure that at some times um, Peter de Hoog was the innovator, he was the first, and Vermeer followed Peter de Hoog and not the other way around. And of course, Vermeer is the number one. And we don't think that with this exhibition we, we make Peter de Hoog the number one. That's not our ambition. But Peter de Hoog hasn't got the, inten- hasn't got the attention he deserves. And that's, that's our ambition. I mean, it's quite extraordinary to hear when, when we arrived here, you told us that this is the very first exhibition of de Hoog's work here in, in mainland Europe, let alone in, 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 in his homeland. That's really strange. And that's what fascinated me when I started to work here in Delft. And that's what motivated us in 2017 to start this project. He's a Delft painter. Uh, He was attached to Delft. Uh, He loved Delft. He painted it. And so what's more plausible than making a project, a, an exhibition and, and a research project on this painter here in Delft and bring back that paintings for one time here 
back to the places where they were made. Now, um, he, he, he was in Delft for a period of years, but then after, after that went to Amsterdam. Um, and you show this sort of transition from his Delft work into the Amsterdam work, and, and towards the end of, the, the end of his life, mm-hmm. it changes quite considerably again, doesn't yeah. it? So tell us what happens there. Uh, when he's moving to Amsterdam, we are sure that he makes that step uh, because uh, there are more possibilities of rich clients in Amsterdam. But when he first uh, moves to Amsterdam, he lives in a very poor neighborhood outside the city walls. And uh, so then he still uses his environment in that sober, poor uh, house to make his paintings. But a few years later, he moves again into the middle of the city, the Jordaan, and then you see that he gets rich clients. And then you see a change in his uh, interior scenes. Uh, He makes interior scenes with marble floors, with uh, uh, rich decorations on the walls, with Chinese porcelain, and with figures in it who are dressed very rich. And he starts making portraits. So he also takes up another genre. He was also a very good portrait painter. That was not his core business, but he managed it as well. Now, he dies, we think, you think, in in 1679. It's been relatively unknown exactly when he dies. Why do we know so little about this artist who obviously had success in his lifetime, sold his work? Why, Why don't we know that much about the end of his life? Yeah, this, this really, uh, it's a riddle. Um, uh, we, we now say, because we don't know when he died, we don't know when he died, we don't know when his wife died, we don't know when his kids died. Really strange. But the last evidence we have is from 1679. So we, we, we advised, were advised, from now on to use in or after 1679. So that's what we do. But he could have lived in 1688 or in 1692. We don't know. But what is really strange is that we don't have evidence at all. I mean, he produced lots of work, didn't he? And, and we know that his work was collected. You have yeah, some yeah, evidence. Yeah, but, but, yeah. but it's extraordinary that somebody who produced that much work and clearly had collectors is so undocumented. Yes. And for, for the end of his life... One of the uh, hypotheses of uh, Jaap van der Veen, he, he researched the life of uh, Pieter de Hoog. He says maybe he moved to the East Indies. Uh, his brother-in-law, uh, Barend Gast, uh, moved to Batavia. We know for a few years that, that was found out that he moved. And uh, Pieter de Hoog followed his brothers-in-laws. Hendrik van der Burg and Barend Gast. So when we, we are certain now that one of them moved, <laughs> moved to Batavia, maybe he moved with his family. Or maybe he moved to the house of his father in Middelburg. And the archives of Middelburg burned. Yeah, so we don't know. We don't know. We keep on searching. Yes, that's what we will do. Yeah. As you say, it's a riddle for now. But thank you so much yeah. for telling us about okay. Peter de Hoog. Thank you. Peter de Hoek in Delft from the shadow of a mere is at the Museum Prinzenhof in Delft until the 16th of February 2020.
And that's it for this week. You can read more on Peter de Hook and my review of Rembrandt Velasquez at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS. You can find that at the App Store. On the website, you can find the subscription to suit you so that you can read the art newspaper across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. And do check out our new newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts on both sides of the Atlantic. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing. Thanks to Margaret and Agnes, to Gregor and Anita and thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe to the podcast and rate or review it on Apple Podcasts as it helps others to find us. Join us next week when we'll be looking at the new Museum of Modern Art in New York. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.